Matthew chapter number 15, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 29. Matthew chapter 15, verse number 29. This is probably a familiar passage of Scripture to you, although you might confuse it with another passage where Christ performs a similar miracle. But I want us to notice a distinction in this passage, and I trust the Lord will speak to our hearts. Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. The Bible says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the sea of Galilee, and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days, have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. His disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks, and brake them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. They that did eat were four thousand men beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coasts of Magdala. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for the people of God. And thank you for the way that you met with us this morning. Lord, we asked you to, and you answered, and you met with us. And we want to praise you for what you did. Lord, I pray that tonight we'd likewise consecrate this service unto you. May you have the preeminence. May you have the governance. And may you get the glory out of everything that's said and done tonight. And may we assume a place and an attitude of obedience to your word as we seek to allow you to work in us that which would bring you the most glory. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me, my family, and Lord, taking care of us, meeting our needs and blessing us. Lord, I just want to thank you for how good you've been to me. I don't deserve a single bit of it, but you're a precious God, you're a sweet Savior, and you're a perfect Father. And I'm just so thankful for who you are and for all that you do. Lord, bless our time together tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, this is a miracle similar to one that our Lord had already performed that we often call the feeding of the 5,000. Much instruction could be gained just from comparing those two miracles. You know, everything that Christ did, it had a dispensational perspective through which to understand it. Every miracle He performed, every parable He taught, everything that He did... You can always draw from it some greater truth regarding God's plan of redemption and God's dispensational plan for humanity over the ages. It's interesting when you read the feeding of the 5,000 to consider the distinction and the differences. We're told that there were less bread and less fish, but we're told exactly how many fish in that passage. That there were five loaves 
and two fishes. They combined together would make, of course, the number seven. Uh, the Bible tells us that there were 5,000 people that were made to sit down. The Bible tells us at the end of that miracle that there were 12 basket loads that were left over. You know, it's interesting. In many ways, that reminds us of God's plan for Israel as a nation. You say, how is that, preacher? Well, uh, whenever Christ feeds those 5,000, five's both the number of death and the number of grace in the Word of God. God's trying to stress to them that His provision is a means of His grace. Then the Bible says that it was five loaves, two fishes. There again, we have that number five, the grace of God. The number two, the idea of fellowship, the fact that God wanted fellowship with Israel as a people. And both those things together create the number seven. That's the number of perfection, amen? And I'll tell you this, when you've got grace of God and fellowship with God, boy, you've got a perfect situation. Then the Bible says that the disciples carry away 12 baskets afterwards. 12, of course, being the number of divine government and being closely related to the tribes of Israel. And it sort of reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that he had come to realize that the adoption of sons that God had appointed to Israel was not accomplished through the law, but rather was accomplished by the grace of God. That God, through the grace of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, had the ability to feed the spiritual need of Israel as a people to meet their need, to grant to them fellowship with God, to bring about to to consummation or completion or fulfillment or perfection, maturity, the relationship that they should have with God. When we read here in Matthew chapter 15, we have a similar miracle, but we're sort of reminded that it has almost an application to the Gentiles as a people. Can I say this? He's God of the Jew and the Gentile. Amen. He's God of all creation. Uh, He can satisfy the need of Israel as a people, but thank the Lord He didn't leave us Gentiles out in the cold. He made a way of salvation. The Bible says here that He feeds 4,000. Four, of course, being the uh, number of, uh, how do we say this? The number of the globe or the number of the cosmos, the number of the world. When you look at the way God designed and created this world, everything's sort of done in four. There's four seasons. There's four compass points. Uh, the Bible talks about the four winds of heaven. And that word always or that number four always seems to be deeply associated with the idea, not of man in his brokenness necessarily, but of the world in a universe. Sense. And the Bible tells us that he has seven loaves and a few little fishes. Why is that? Well, because there's the untold masses of the Gentile people. Uh, we don't know how many fish that it took, but we know he had enough. Amen. Uh, we don't know how long. Listen, we're going to live in this dispensation of grace, but we know he'll be enough no matter what. Then the Bible says that they're left with seven uh, at the end. And, of course, again, that number seven identifies with the idea of perfect completion of God's plan. It's fascinating to study the distinctions and the differences. And one of the distinctions betwixt the two is the crowd that is gathered here. I want to be very clear with this. There were infirmed people at the healing of the 5,000. And there are whole people here at the healing of the 4,000. But when we read about the feeding of the 5,000, we find that though it tells us that he did heal some individuals that were there, there is no great emphasis laid to the sickness or infirmity of the crowd that is present at the feeding of the 5,000. 
In fact, the emphasis rather is on his teaching. They followed him out into the wilderness because they want to hear him teach. They want to hear his truth. They want to hear what he has to say. But here in Matthew 15, there is great emphasis laid both to the severity of the sickness of these people and to the the sheer number of the sick people that are present there. The Bible says in verse 29 uh, that Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were, and then it lists them for us, lame, meaning they could not walk, blind, uh, meaning that they could not see, dumb, meaning they cannot vote. Amen? Uh, no, dumb, meaning they cannot speak. Maimed, meaning have some severe injury or, or some great disability to their body and many others and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And, you know, that sounds a little, a little crude the way it says that, but hey, praise God that when you couldn't get to Him, there's people carried you to Him and threw you at His feet. Amen. They cast them down at Jesus' feet and the Bible says He healed them. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think about the experience of these people. They have come to Jesus with a deep, great, hurting need. And then Jesus works a miracle upon them. Think about two things. Number one, notice they were hurting. These are not people whose lives are largely put together, but they're just lacking the corners being tucked in of their life. But these are people whose lives are defined by misery, pain, and suffering. I don't know, it may have been too long, but can you remember what it was like when you lived a miserable life without Jesus Christ? And you know, very often, this is the way the blindness of Satan is in people's lives. Often a person can be miserable, they don't even really know how miserable they are because they don't understand how joyful they could be. But now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you look backwards on those days, do you remember what it was like to be infirm, to be in pain, to be hurting? And I don't mean physically, but I mean spiritually hurting. These people come to Jesus and and they're not coming to Him saying they're okay. They're coming to Him admitting freely they're not okay. They come to Him because they have a great need in their life. They were hurting, but I like how verse 30 ends. The Bible says He healed them. Now let me say, I believe God heals people. I believe God has the power. I don't believe any preacher has the power. I don't believe we, we anoint with oil because it's a biblical practice in James chapter number 5, but the oil does not have any ability to, to heal or anything. It can fry up a, a mean meatball, somebody say amen to that, but it, it doesn't have any intrinsic power to heal anyone. I can't heal you. No, no preacher on the TV, no matter what they say, can heal you. But God does have the power when it's in His will to do so to heal people. And I've seen God do that. I've seen doctors just look dumbfounded trying to explain what God had done. I, I, we just got through burying Lou Milligan. I remember a moment distinctly whenever, and I can't remember everything about the situation. I think she had some, uh, she had some, some shadows and some places in her lungs, and the doctors were convinced. I mean, they knew that it was lung cancer. They had no question whatsoever it was lung cancer. And I still remember the look on the doctor's face when he walked out of the operating room to talk to the family. And he looked like he had swallowed his tongue. He didn't know what to say. And he looked at him and just said, they're not there. We looked for them. They're supposed to be there, but they're not there. The family said, well, how'd that happen? He said, I don't know, but I simply know when I look, they're not there. Well, he may not be willing to admit it, but I know what happened. God healed her. But let me say, far beyond God healing any physical malady that you or I may have, there's a greater healing that He did when He saved us. 
He didn't just heal the body, man. He healed the soul. And he healed these people. And it's a reminder that the biggest problem they had in their life, Jesus was sufficient to meet that need. He healed them. He saved them. He redeemed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak. And let me just say, there's been times I've seen the dumb speak and I've wondered at it. But here it's saying people that had no ability to speak, all of a sudden they could could speak. Imagine how terrifying that'd be, amen? Somebody you've lived with for 15, 20 years ain't had the ability to say nothing, then God loosed their tongue. What are they going to tell on you, amen? And then the maimed were made whole. The lame were made to walk. The blind were made to see. These are all things beyond the ability of man. All things that were miraculous that took heaven to do. The Bible says they glorified the God of Israel. They were hurting people, but they were healed people now. God had met the greatest need of their life. And yet the Bible says in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Think about this miracle from their perspective. They were hurting people when Jesus found them. They are healed people now who have seen the power of God. But now... They are a hungry people. Now, all of a sudden, they've been following Jesus. And rather than it leading them to great wealth and great joy, they found themselves in the middle of a desert place, three days away from civilization, starving with nothing to eat. I wonder how that struck them. I don't know about you, but if I had been them, I would have maybe been slipping my hand up and asking some questions. I'd have been saying, uh, teacher, I've followed you out here. I know that you have the power of God. I know that you've healed us. I know that you've done these things. We're getting awful hungry back here. And Lord, what are you going to do about our hunger? I'd probably have other questions. I'd wonder how my need would be met. I'd probably wonder what Jesus thought about my situation. Does he care that I'm hungry? Probably would wonder what he would do for me? Is he going to uh, perform a miracle? Is he going to turn uh, stones into bread, amen, or biscuits or something? What's he going to do? How's he going to provide? But then I would have probably been struck with this question. Why would he allow this need to arise in the first place? The same God that knew we'd come to him in need would know that we'd be hungry a few days later. The same God that knew that we needed Him then would know that we needed Him now. Why would He let us go hungry? Why would He let us feel a need? Why would He let us suffer if He loves us so much? I want you to stop and think about these people. And I want to preach on this thought tonight from healed to hungry. Sometimes in your life, hey, just because you got saved, that don't mean you're never going to face a problem. I know the preacher on TV tells you that, but he gets paid a lot of money to tell you that. Just because you're saved, that doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. Just because you're saved, that don't mean you ain't going to struggle sometimes. Just because you're saved, that doesn't mean that there ain't going to be times that you're going to have more month than paycheck. That don't mean there ain't going to be times that that you're going to have a relationship that, that begins to shake apart. That doesn't mean you're not going to have times that your health will fail. There are going to be times that though you are saved by the grace of God, though you are the, the ward of the God of glory, though you are a child of the King, He will still allow you to feel deeply a need in your life. Why would He do that? 
What can we learn from this passage? I think there's four reasons that he let them be hungry. Not go hungry, but be hungry in this passage. Notice verse 32 with me. The Bible says this, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I like this, I have compassion on the multitude. Let me say number one tonight. You say, preacher, why would God let me have a need in my life that has not been met yet? Why would he let me struggle? Why would he let me me grapple with this great problem that I'm facing? He is omnipotent. He has the, the ability to fix this, to heal this, to change this, to meet this need. Why would he allow this to happen? Well, I'll tell you why he allowed it to happen here. And that was that they might see his pity. How are we ever going to cast our care upon him if we don't know that he careth for us? And how are we ever going to know that he cares for us if we don't ever have a care in this world? It's very similar in some ways to the great answer to the great question, why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin in the garden? And some people would say, well, he couldn't stop them. But I don't believe that. I believe he could have. He's God. But he allowed them to sin in the garden. Why did he do that? Well, there's certain things about God you'd never know if that hadn't happened. You'd know about his holiness. You'd know about his glory and majesty. You'd know about his power. But you wouldn't know about his love. You wouldn't know about his grace. You wouldn't know about his loving kindness and his long sufferingness. It was only through that failure that God's grace could be expressed. And in this passage, let me say that it is only through seasons of great need that we begin to comprehend the great pity that he has towards us. He wanted them to understand two things. Number one, he wanted them to know his compassion towards them. He said, I have compassion on the multitude. Why is that? Well, we know he had had compassion on them already. He cared when they were sick. Would he now care when they're struggling? We have a funny idea sometimes in Bible Christianity. We think that we come to Jesus broken, battered, worthless, and helpless. And he looks down with great pity and great love and great care and extends a hand and lifts us out of the miry clay and sets her feet on a solid rock and establishes her goings and then immediately looks at us and says, suck it up and deal with life on your own. But isn't that completely disconstant with what we know about the God of the Bible? Uh, does God ever ask His people to go alone? I understand we may have to go without human companionship. We may have to go without, without human support. But He has told us, let your conversation be without covetousness for as much as it is written, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the very nature and attitude and disposition of God all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is a truth that is that is proclaimed. It sounds like the tolls of a bell repeatedly over and over again. God cares, God cares, God cares, God cares about what you're going through. We can look at Calvary and tell that He cares. But not only at Calvary, we can look at every activity of the Savior and see that He cares. We can read New Testament truth given by the pen of the Holy Ghost, and tell that He cares, He cares, He cares. Never has a child of God been in a situation in which God did not care about the things that they were facing. The reason we can cast our care upon Him is not because we hope He cares for us, but because we know He cares for us. He had cared when they were suffering. Now He cares when they are struggling. This is the reason He gives, because they continue with me now three days. And have nothing to eat. 
It's interesting. These people could have left and gone home. I might just preach for a minute here. These people could have left and gone home. They could have quit on Jesus like a lot of people no doubt would have. They could have said, listen, I'll follow him, but not if i got to trust him to feed me. I'll follow him, but not if that means I don't get everything I want. I'll follow him, but not if that means I won't always understand or always have the agency over my life. But these people chose not to do that. They said, I'll follow him even when I don't know what the plan is. I'll follow him even when I don't know what he's going to do. And that touched the heart of the Savior. He looks at his disciples and they say, hey, send them away. There's bound to be a McDonald's somewhere. He says, no, these people have stuck with me. I'm not going to abandon them now. He wanted them to understand his compassion towards them, but he also wanted them to see his commitment to them. He says this, I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. He says, they ain't give up on me. I ain't going to give up on them. They followed me. They've stayed with me. And how could we understand clearly the stick to That's a good theological word, isn't it? The steadfastness, the immutability, the faithfulness of the character of God if we never had a moment or a season in our life in which it was difficult to abide by our side. How could we ever know that He'll never leave us if there was never moments when we'd leave our life if we could? It's in those moments when we'd look and say, I don't even want to be going through what I'm going through, that we look to our side and say, but bless the Lord, He's going through it with me, that we're reminded that He is a faithful God. They needed to understand he wasn't just faithful in the miracle. He was faithful at mealtime. He wasn't just faithful when they were sick. He was faithful when they were struggling. And in the infirmity, not just of their illness, but in the infirmity of their weakness and of their need, he would not leave them. He says, I will not abandon you and I will not send you away. I will instead keep you close and minister to your need. They learned something that day. They learned this. The Savior cares. He cares about them. Every single one of them he cared about in this passage. He, 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 I think he let this happen that they might see his pity. But then look at verse 33. The Bible says this. And his disciples say unto him, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? Isn't that funny? I, I've met people like this in life. Their, their, their spiritual gift is identifying a problem they got no solution for. You ever met anybody like this? That's their spiritual gift. Preacher, what are we going to do about that? I don't know. Well, we better do something about it. Well, what do you think we ought to do? Well, I don't know what we ought to do. Amen. And uh, one of the things that you'll find out, you hang around the Lord's work long enough, and most of the time, if we had a good idea or a good plan, we would already put it in place a long time ago. Amen. There's just things that, that occur where there's people, there's problems. And, and here in this passage, I mean, one of his disciples says, what are we going to do, Lord? What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to meet this need? And the Lord didn't look at him and say like a smart aleck Baptist preacher, well, I don't know, Winter. Why don't you go figure it out? He instead saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven and a few little fishes. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. You're one of these people. You came to Jesus. You were blind, but now you can see. You came to Jesus. And your mouth was closed, but now your tongue has been loose. You came to Jesus or were brought to Jesus, and your legs didn't work. And now you're walking in this great enclave of people that is following the Savior. And everybody's growing hungry. Everybody's beginning to grumble. 
And you no doubt would look ahead at that man that had worked a miracle in your life and ask this question, wonder if he knows what he's doing. His disciples were thinking that because they come up and say, what are we going to do? And instead of being confused and instead of being at a loss, Jesus says, what do you have at your disposal? They say, this is what we have. And he says, give me what you have. And then he says, make everybody sit down. Now, here's something that God has taught me in ministry over the years. Uh, even when you ain't got a plan, act like you got a plan. Amen. But can I tell you something precious about the Savior? He always has a plan. It is apparent by his response that he knows what he's doing. And let me say this. He let this need arise in their life that they might see his pity. But number two, that they might see his providence. That they might understand that this situation had not gotten beyond him. That they might understand that even when they didn't see a clear path forward, that didn't impede the clear vision of God. God always sees a path forward. They learned two things. Number one, they learned he has a plan. And I will tell you, you probably don't have a plan for whatever the biggest problem you're facing in life is. If you did, you would have implemented it a long time ago. But can I remind you that God has never been caught without a plan. You understand, before there was ever a world to work a plan on or in, he had a plan. Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before there was ever sin, there was already a Savior. Before there was ever sin, there was already a sacrifice. Before there was ever a problem, there was already a plan. And in your life, before there was ever a problem that arose, whatever it may be, financial or spiritual or physical or emotional or relational in your life, before that problem ever arose, God already had a plan for how to address it. He has a plan. But then I like what he says in verse 35. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. I love this because I'm the type of person that thrives with simple instruction. Amen. You can ask my wife. We were talking about this uh, the other day. I can't remember where or when. I just I talk a lot, so uh, it's hard to keep track. But I was talking about cooking and what a mess I make cooking things. I remember this because I remember she wasn't there when I was talking about it. But uh, how that, that I can do the exact things that my wife does. And how horribly it turns out. And, you know, as far as cooking is concerned and, and times that I've, I've, for whatever reason, need to cook. I, I mean, I cracked an egg just like she cracked an egg, but it didn't turn out the same way. And I, and I, listen, I mean, I, I, I heated up the oven just like she heats up the oven, but it didn't work the same. And I poured oil in the pan just like she pours oil in the pan, but it didn't work the same. Invariably, when she steps into the mess of a situation that I've created to try to rescue it, she'll point out little things that for somebody that's an experienced uh, cook or, or homekeeper that, that they just know, they've learned it by years of experience that, that when you've not done that, you just don't know. I thrive under simple instructions. I need you to break things down into bite-sized portions with very clear... If you're ever giving me instructions and you're tempted to stop and say, well, I don't have to say that. Only an idiot wouldn't know to do that. Write it out because I'll need to know, okay? And I love this passage because he gives them a clear instruction. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. I know what they thought. They sat down on the ground and looked up and said, what's next? And he said, I'll take care of the rest. Here's what they learned. They learned he has a plan, but they also learned they have a place. And that place is a place of obedience. They didn't have to know what he was going to do. All they had to do was sit down when they were told to sit down. 
They didn't have to know what he was going to 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 do. They didn't have to know the miracle. They didn't have to know the physics of it. They didn't have to know the theological implications of it. They didn't have to understand any of it. They just had to follow the clear instruction of the Savior and He would take care of the rest. I'm telling you, in your life, you look at your problems. I know you do this because I do this. And we say, Lord, what am I going to do? How am I going to figure this out? What am I going to do next? And the Lord looks down from glory and says, my child, just obey and Follow simple instructions and I'll take care of the rest. Oftentimes the anxiety that we feel is due to the fact that we're trying to do God's portion when God's not to His portion yet. We're trying to rush and take the implements, the utensils of the workings of our life out of His hands and rush the process And if we just slow down and say, I know what God has commanded me to do and the rest is up to Him, I will do as He instructed me. If He wants something else out of me, then He will tell me. But until that moment in time, I'm going to be faithful to the responsibilities that I have. He wanted them to see His providence. Then look at verse 36. The Bible says this, And He took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to His disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they all did all eat, verse 37, and were filled. I want you to notice, he wanted them to see his pity and his providence, but he wanted them to see his process and to see how he worked. Now, I would highly doubt that all of those 4,000 individuals, and like the other uh, occasion when he healed 5,000, there was probably many, many more people on the hillside that day. And so likewise here, there was probably multitudes of people even beyond that when you accounted spouses and children and so on and so forth. I doubt that all of them saw him break the bread. But I'll tell you this, it did not take long in that crowd. When the crowd that was set up at his table saw him break the bread and it didn't get any smaller, saw him break the fish and it didn't get any smaller, and saw him fill basket after basket after basket, I promise you it went like wildfire through that multitude what Jesus was doing. I'd say there wasn't a person on that hillside that didn't know he had performed a miracle that day and did not know. And I can just imagine the conversation. I can imagine somebody whispering up and saying, what's he doing? What's he doing? Has anybody seen? Have you seen what he's doing? And at the same time that they're sending their question forward from the back, the answer's already on its way from the front. And people saying, did you see what he just did? The fellow in front of me told me that he just started breaking that bread and that it just kept breaking and that he just kept filling baskets. And it probably went from next to the next to the next to the next all the way to the back end of that crowd. The miracle that he had done. And here's what they would have all understood. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't necessarily describe it. But he just kept breaking that bread and the need kept being met. In other words, he wanted them to see how he works and what takes place when he is working in a matter. And notice the two things they learned. Number one, they would have seen how he broke it repeatedly. How that when he breaks things, it doesn't minimize them. It multiplies them. How that, in fact, the wholeness is what hinders the miracle taking place. The brokenness is what enables the miracle to take place. 
much like the alabaster box, beautiful as it may be, that couldn't minister to anyone when it was whole, but could only give glory to God in anointing Him when it was broken. So likewise, this meal, when it was whole, it could not but feed a few people. But as it was broken over and over and over again, more needs were met, more lives were touched, more bellies were filled over and over and over. And here's what they understood. If you take your life and give it to Jesus, He will break it repeatedly. In other words, in our life, we can't expect... Listen, the purpose of holiness in our life is not to maintain a steady state of mind and a complete absence of fear and anxiety. That's not God's preeminent goal in your life. Just like it's not to keep you happy above your holiness, it's also not to keep you at peace of mind above your holiness. There are times that God will allow things in your life that are troubling and fear-inducing and distressing and disturbing because only, listen, in moments, only in moments when fear is a temptation can we choose faith above fear. So here in this passage, they learned that part of God's... But that Listen, when He has to break areas of your life, and what I mean by that is allowing suffering, allowing need, allowing tragedy, allowing unpalatable situations to arise... When He breaks your life, it's not because He's not working. It's because He is working. It's not because He doesn't have a plan. It's because He does have a plan. It's not because things are dysfunctional. It's because things are as God designed them. And God is working in your life. They would have seen how He broke it repeatedly. But number two, they would have learned how He fed them incrementally. Funny thing about it, if He's filling these one basket at a time, one piece at a time, I bet it took a long time to feed that many people. I mean, I don't know. My guess is it probably took hours to feed that many people. We're getting ready to have homecoming. You'd be amazed how slow people can go through a homecoming line. Amen? Pick out the exact... No, I don't want that piece of macaroni. I want this piece of macaroni. Amen? I don't want... Let me... Let me. I'm going to move all these chicken legs aside and find the one that has my name on it, the one that God has divinely appointed for me to have. Amen? Which... Hey, listen... Which 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 one of which one of the deviled eggs has most of that red stuff on the top? Which one? Slow, man. I mean, listen, Jesus might come back before we get through that line. I mean, heaven help, just go. And uh I'd imagine it took a long time to feed all these people. They would have learned this God doesn't perform the greatest miracles in a hurry. Sometimes it takes time. And in your life, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God took every need you'd ever have and met it all at one time? But you know what you'd soon do? You'd forget about Him. You'd decide you didn't need Him anymore. What do I need Him for? He's already met every need. And you'd walk away from Him. But I promise you this, everybody was paying attention to how many of them baskets were coming out, at least until their need was met, they were. And they were watching carefully and they learned this, that God meets the need of His people not all at one time. It sort of reminds me of how they conquered Canaan. The Bible says when God let them conquer Canaan, He told them, He said, I won't let you conquer it all at one time because you couldn't hold the land if I did that. The wild animals and the weeds would take over the land. But He said, little by little, you'll conquer the land of Canaan. Likewise, little by little, God works in our life. They would have learned of His process. And then finally, and I'm done... Why don't you look at verse 37? The Bible says at the end of it, they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. 
Why did he let this need arise in their life? Don't you imagine they were confused? Here's the thing. He wanted them to see his pity. That he cares about them. He's not going to give up on them. They wanted, he wanted them to see his providence. That he always has a plan and that they have a place. They have a responsibility. And that's to follow the instructions to do as they have been told to do from the word of God. And that they might see his process. That he's going to break the provisions given to him over and over. And that he will feed them incrementally. Not all at once, but piece by piece. But finally, he wanted them to see his provision. That he meets the needs of his people. That there's no need that you have that's too big for Him. There are times that God did miracles, Christ did miracles in the New Testament for an audience of one. And we know it wasn't just for an audience of one because the Word of God contained it in Scripture uh, for us to read. But in that moment, there would only be one person or just a handful of people that were present there and that saw it. Here in this passage, the miracle He does He does, and it involves thousands of people, and it is on display for thousands of people. It's almost like he's trying to send a message. He wanted them to see, number one, the sufficiency of his provision. Now, I want you to think about something. I'm I'm this type of person. There's something gratifying, whatever it might be, and I probably don't even have a good illustration of this. But whatever the need is to see the need perfectly met, there's something gratifying about that. Have you ever had that? Yeah, you ever been fixing something, maybe food you were fixing, and you had just enough for the recipe? Have you ever had, the other day I was mowing the yard, and I went out and, and I left my lawnmower bone drive gas. I mean, just coasted into the garage at the very last stretch. Man, it felt good. I felt like I beat those oil taxes out somehow. And I find it gratifying to meet a need just so. But an omniscient God, an omnipotent God, did not meet this need just so. He could have had everybody on that hillside join the clean plate club. Anybody got kids? You know what clean plate club is, right? He could have made sure that the last piece of bread was the last piece of bread needed. But he didn't. He made sure there was over and above what was needed. So much so that they had seven baskets full left over. Say, so what is he trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate he don't have just enough to meet your need. He has more than enough to meet your need. It's funny, man. Our needs look big to us. I know they do. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I know they do. We face our need, and it looks big as a mountain. But that's because we're standing at the foot of it. If you were God seated in heaven above it, and you look way down on this earth, that, that problem that looks like a mountain to us would look like just a little speck of dirt to him. You know, that is the divine perspective. Because of his love of us, he feels it like we feel it. And he he cares about it like we care about it. But don't think for one moment that just because it's big to us that it intimidates God. He has over and above what we might need. And that's what he wanted them to learn. He wanted them to learn not just the sufficiency of his provision, but the scope of his provision. Hey, he didn't just feed a few people on this day. He fed thousands. And he wanted them to understand that he can meet any need. In fact, if you were to gather, it's one of the things I love about church. If you were to gather a whole group of people together and scoop up all of their problems in a bushel basket and carry it to God, it still wouldn't be beyond His ability. By the way, that's what we do here every Wednesday night. We scoop our problems up in a bushel basket 
and carry them to God. And we found that He's always adequate. He's always more than enough for the needs that we're facing. I'll tell you what I would have learned that day if I had been one of those people. I would have walked away and I would have said, boy, he can feed this multitude. You know he can feed my family too. If he can feed this multitude, he can can meet my needs. If he can do this, he can do anything. If he can do this, then there's nothing beyond his ability. I would have walked away and said, you know what I realize? Even when I ain't got a plan, he's got a plan. I would have walked away and and I would have said, you know, I thought he didn't care about us when this happened. But turns out he cares about us. And I would have walked away and I would have said, you know, I wish he'd meet every need at once. But if I'll just trust him, he'll meet every need in the end. He's always faithful. You might in your life have gone from hurting to healed. But today you find yourself hungry with some need in your life that needs to be met. And you say, preacher, why would God allow that? I don't like it. Well, listen, I'll I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't like it any better than you like it when I'm struggling, just like you don't like it when you're struggling. And can I even tell you something else? You ain't going to believe this. But because he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, God don't like it when you're struggling either. Although sometimes it's necessary to bring about his purposes in your life. But I will tell you this. Though none of us like it, we can trust that we have a God that's adequate to the need that we're facing and that there's a purpose and a reason for everything we're experiencing. You know, if they had left, they wouldn't have got fed. It didn't look like supper time there for a while. But if they had finally bailed off, hey, and there might have been some that did. They didn't get fed, those that walked away. But those that stuck with him, hey, they got to eat. Don't listen, don't walk away from him. Stick with him. He'll meet your need. Preacher, it's getting awful close. God knows. God knows. He knows when. He knows better than you do whether the time is close for that need to be met. Because He knows all things. In fact, He inhabiteth eternity. He's inside and outside of time at the same time. He's already seated at the place of crisis in your need, waiting on you to show up and get there and find out He's already met that need. So trust Him. Trust Him. Walk with Him. Day by day. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. I want to invite you to bring that need to the altar. Whatever it is to meet him down here. And to just lay it before him. Like those people that were brought and cast at his feet. Don't you take that problem and come lay it at his feet. Say, Lord, I, I don't, I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't have a plan, but I trust you. I don't know what to do, but I trust you. And I'm willing to depend upon you for this need. Father, bless this invitation. I pray glorify Christ. And I pray we get real help tonight as we come to you. Father, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed.